Up next, we have a panel discussion on the future of storytelling. It's funny how topic after topic is so near and dear to my heart. Uh, the digital world creates new opportunities in the way we tell stories, how people watch, read, or listen to them. Uh, and today we've assembled a panel of knowledgeable people in different industries who bring a range of perspectives to talk about some of the innovative ways they've been telling stories and when they, where they think things are headed. We'll be leaving about 10 minutes at the end of the session for audience Q&A. And if you're watching the stream, you can send your questions through the question box or through Twitter. I think it would be great to get some questions from the people who are watching uh, remotely. Moderating this panel is Nigel Newton. Nigel leads innovation in digital content and experiences with emerging media and technology. Consulting in augmented and virtual reality, he is director in Canada for Indie on their large screen broadcast AR solutions. You can see them at the Toronto Zoo and at the Montreal Biodome. He's a consultant to the AWE company on the Fort York Historic Site virtual reality experience and specialist advisor on augmented reality and virtual reality to IAB Canada and Digifest. He is an observer, commentator, and public speaker on immersive content and experiences. I'll now I'll leave it to Nigel to introduce the rest of the panelists and uh, start off this conversation. Over to you, Nigel. Thank you very much, Ramona, and good morning, everyone. Um, for, actually, I'm not going to introduce them. They're going to introduce themselves because this is a kind of an interactive thing. So I'm going to start with Siobhan, and uh, she's going to introduce uh, her work in transmedia. Great. Thank you. Um, so I am uh, sort of living in two worlds, one of which is academe and the other is the professional digital media space. And um, that's sort of been an intensive 15 years, really going back through 10 years with the Canadian Film Center's Media Lab and advising on interactive narrative design. Um, over this past year, I've actually stepped out of projects a little bit because I'm in the midst of actually, I have a contract to write a book that was commissioned and it's on the impact of digital media on storytelling uh, for a, sort of an academic publisher, for an undergraduate audience, so in effect a primer on what we need to know now in terms of both the history of different forms from basically sort of hypertext gaming, uh, moving up into interactive cinema, as well as then augmented reality, VR and alternate reality games. Um, so I keep pushing off sort of VR projects and just advising uh, and sort of in little bits. Um, and so currently the sort of the work that I'm doing is really thinking about basically 2025 and what storytelling or what I'm thinking of, in fact, as not telling a story but designing a story is going to look like for our audiences in 2025 because I have this just firm, like, sort of core belief that, that the generation that is growing up now has a radically different understanding and interaction with stories than I have a framework for understanding because I have teens and they don't tell me what they're doing. <laughs> so I'll sort of stop there. David. Hi, uh, I'm David Caron. I'm a co-publisher at uh, ECW Press. Uh, our company's been around for over 40 years. Uh, I've been with them for uh, about the last 12, 13 years now. Um, and ECW uh, is your typical book publisher, like most other book publishers that are uh, out here in, in the audience. Uh, we do adult trade books. We do uh, uh, about 50 books a year, uh, and it's fiction, non-fiction uh, that uh, primarily in the cultural field, whether it's uh, on film or sports and things like that. 
Um, I'm the non-VR person up here because I was asked <laughs> to come up here because we embarked about a year and a half ago on an audiobook project. Uh, uh, because audiobooks are the fastest growing segment of, of sort of our market and it's a way that, you know, people's lifestyles are changing in such a way that they want to consume books in a different way. They want to consume media more on the go and audiobooks fits that bill perfectly as well as podcasts and, and sort of other audio uh, forms. Um, but uh, beyond, you know, a publishing company here and there like Podium up in New Market or Post Hypnotic out in Vancouver, that's not really any solid audiobook production happening in, uh, in Canada, really. Uh, it's happening in the States, and all the Canadian stuff that's being done is actually happening in the States. So, you know, a group of us publishers decided that we were going to change that if we could and, uh, and began this project to produce audiobooks here in Canada. So that's, that's why I'm up here on this panel. Very cool. Over to you, Joanne. Okay, hello, I'm Joanne. I'm one of the co-founders of Sesqui. We're a um, not-for-profit, uh, purpose-built multimedia company um, that is creating a space for dialogue around Canada's 150th anniversary. We're in it. <laughs> it's uh, throughout 2017. Uh, and we're creating a variety of ways to engage. So we've got a digital online interactive game. We've got virtual reality program. And then we also have an in-dome uh, tour uh, with a... Um, uh, a hemispherical film. Excellent. David? Hi, I'm Dave Brady. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Cream Productions. Uh, we're a film and television company that's been around for about uh, 14 years now. Um, and we do television series uh, for um, all the factual networks that you can think of that we uh, knock on the doors of and try to sell our wares. But it's things like uh, Discovery Channel, National Geographic, History Channel. So it's Largely um, uh, unscripted, and we're starting a little scripted division now too as well, so we're doing a bit of scripted. We started um, our AR and VR division about a year and a half ago um, because someone came into my office one day and put a gear on my head and I was at the Paul McCartney concert and I walked around my room and bashed into my desk and I thought, this is amazing. So we invested some money to basically do R&D um, and... Um, so, and develop a business at the same time as developing technologies and storytelling. So we've been doing that for about a year and a half, and I'm pretty pr very proud of the, the unit and what they've done. Um, but, you know, we're starting to make money doing it, but more so we're having fun um, pushing the limits creatively, uh, technologically, and trying to develop a business along the way. And um, I have six kids in a blended marriage, and I see all six of them consuming technologies in fascinating ways. So... It really makes me wake up every morning and think, oh, gosh, I have to conquer the future or really think of the future or else I'm going to be a dinosaur fast. So. Well, there we go. So what we're going to do is take a look at uh, the way in which technology has impacted um, the consumer experience, but also how the <laughs> consumer desire and intent is impacting technology and storytelling. So I'd like to take that and, and angle it towards a discussion point for, <coughs> for us. So by saying this, if every story told to this point is essentially the same, is the future of storytelling dependent on new technologies to present the same themes in different ways? Joanne. <laughs> Sorry, we were discussing this earlier. And uh, <laughs> um, no, I don't think so. I think unless machines start building stories for machines, I think human... Uh, humans and human spirit and a human capacity for storytelling is so innate that it's always up to us as storytellers to find the best platform and medium in which to present our stories. So I don't think it's entirely dependent on the technology. I think it's just um, crafting the story to fit the technology. 
Now, David, you were debating that point a little bit earlier on. How, what's your view on that take on that? Uh, debating in the sense that I, I agree with Joanne. Um, I, I think, you know, uh, it is amazing to me that we constantly create new stories that really engage us all the time. And, you know, it's, it's constantly out there in, the, in our culture. What changes, I think, is, is from time to time, is, is how people engage with stories in their lifestyle. You know, and that's why for me, like the audiobook thing is something because people are more on the go. They want to engage with things in that way. Um, people engage, I think, also with stories uh, out of curiosity. You know, in some ways, and I think I think there's going to be people who are going to check want to check out VR for that for that reason. Whether or not it takes off, I mean, I think none of us know that. Right. I mean, we all thought eBooks were going to take off, and then but then there's some of us who said no, they're not because books are a very tangible thing, and it's a very you know, visceral thing to read a book, and so it's probably not going to. And, but we didn't know. But what we found is, is it sort of crested, and now it's sort of waning a little bit in terms of, in terms of use for ebooks. So I think that's the thing that, that um, the creation of stories is always going to be something that's going to continually amaze us. How we present those stories to fit people's lifestyles, I think, are going to be sort of what, mm. at the crux of what we've got to figure out. And Jeffrey Cole mentioned earlier on about how teenagers' habits are teenagers' habits. You spoke about teenagers, uh, Siobhan. Um, you're looking today at uh, children aged eight to nine years old who will be teenagers in 2025, 20, right? So uh, w where do you see technology impacting our path for the future in, in, from your point of view? Um, I think it's a, it's a huge question, and I think anyone spending time with children, uh, you know, sort of easily 10 and under, and then thinking about what happens in tweens and teens. Um, I have friends who are sort of regularly posting about the doings of their children, you know, four to seven to eight, and someone uh, sort of posted a comment about, which I thought was really salient about a year ago, which was that her daughter, who was five, fully expects the kind of the characters and the stories that she interacts with and sort of sees on television to exist across platforms. She expects to see games. She expects to basically have material books, material figures, and she sort of engages with those characters and engages with that story world in a way that's continuous. So this opens up a very different way of thinking, which is already there as part of like the thinking around transmedia, which is that, that the whole notion of disciplines for the audience is not really as relevant, right, when you start thinking about doing continuous stories. And I think in that sense, it's also then thinking about like sort of differences that start to happen between storytelling, but also again coming back to this idea of designing a story, which is now part of the whole kind of, um, uh, I think the pickup pick around ideas like story world, where basically we see big brand entertainment properties that are being designed as story worlds, so multiple points of entry for you know basically audiences. And then I think designing experiences, which is like clearly the space of VR right now, is, is about thinking about not telling a story, but how your audience experiences the story, which can actually be as a very personalized point of view within the story. And that's really different from a kind of perspective of telling a story. So there's like, there's opportunities that these new technologies are opening up. And every time we have a new technology or a new media form, you know, we can go back to McLuhan and think about the fact that it takes a little while to figure out what works in that space. So we bring in all of our understanding from other media and play with it in there until we figure out, ah, 
this is what works, right? This is where the gold sits. So, uh, David um, Brady, uh, Brady the, the whole concept of technology eroding the marketplace for content providers, content producers. Um, uh, Jeffrey Cole mentioned that uh, legacy media uh, or legacy companies in general have a danger and a disadvantage going up against a pure digital play. Um, you, you've concentrated in the area of, of, of content development in emerging new media over the last decade. Um, do you think legacy media is here to stay? How do you think technology is going to impact that? I think it depends what you mean by legacy media. I mean, books will, are not going away, as David pointed out. Um, I think, um, you know, my kids are obsessed by the musical Hamilton right now. That's a, it's a musical based on an 18th century story. I don't think legacy media goes away. You just get more and more options as the years go by. Um, certain things do, I think, atrophy because, you know, black and white, no one makes things in black and white really anymore. But I think for the most part, we just get more options. Um, but back to your, 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 your question about um, whether stories have uh, essentially all been told, I think the answer is kind of yes and no. I think we're retelling a lot of the same stories. You know, if you read, you know, we've been telling written stories for 3,000 years, you know, there's a lot of the same themes and archetypes. I know you don't want me to talk about the past, and I won't. <laughs> um, but, and I, say, I think the same thing about when I hear pop music, I'm like, who, there can't be any more pop songs. Like, who can come up with another formula of musical notes and singing? But every year we get a raft of new pop songs. So we reinvent kind of the same stories, but we reinvent them in a new way for a modern world. And I think that our technologies are doing the same thing. We're reinventing human stories, you know, love, loss, jealousy, all those things. But underlying whether you're going to use a technology, any technology you use, if your story isn't good, if you're not starting with this something that attracts people, you can have cross-platform out the yin-yang. You can have, you know, all the bells and whistles, but it's not going to be, it's not going to work. And I'll just say one last thing, you know, I was thinking about one of the last films I saw. You know, we can do anything in 3D, two, uh, 3D cinema these days. Like, you can create any world. There's no, there's no limits. But it can be the most insipid, boring movie, unless you have a great story and great cast, or you can have a two-man play, two-person play, that's incredibly compelling, and it's so simple. So to me, it's back to story and the strength of it. And I think you've said, go, go ahead. Can I jump yeah, in jump there? Yeah, jump in, please. Yeah, yeah so, go Because so, I wanted to bring this up just in this context of the storytelling kind of framing question, which is, you know, you could think about something like Star Wars, which is huge, and you know, as my, as my sister has said about, you know, sort of two boys and her husband, you outgrow SpongeBob, you don't outgrow Star Wars. You know, it sort of continues on through generations. Um, and yet what we're seeing right now are, are sort of revisionings of the Star Wars, both mythology and archetype with basically female leads. It's been some really fantastic, like indie uh, sort of feminist blogging happening around, you know, Padme wouldn't have died in the Star Wars universe if she'd had an OBGYN. You know, basically, if reproductive health care had been on par with the other medical technologies. So you sort of think about, like, again, the context of audience and what shifts and what changes. So, yeah, like, you can always reinvent stories and spin them in new ways for new audiences. And going back to teens, which you'd sort of asked mm. me about directly, teens and smaller children. And I think, you know, like... I, I kind of feel like in the grip of this obsession with Snapchat, because it's a walled garden, 
that I don't have access to in the way that teens do in terms of what they're doing. So I feel like I want like the figure in Neuromancer who's the cool hunter to basically like, okay, what are they doing? Because my daughter won't show me her like Snapchat stories. I don't know what they're inventing now. And it's like, you know, I think like all of these forms are happening and they're under the water unless you're part of that community or you have access to that community about developing a language. I think every art form or every medium has its own language. And we're at a critical juncture, I think, where a lot of people are pushing up against traditional old form, maybe legacy, I don't know, but like old form uh, language of, of film and what we're used to and trying to um, push the boundaries of that. And um, I. I believe what we're doing at Susquehanna with a full dome production, it was a big surprise for us in terms of learning curve, is that when you're in a full dome environment like a planetarium, you you know there's no such thing as a close-up. And we're so familiar with what that close-up means, right? And then the uh, you put the close-up in, in a sequence and it, it's telling you a certain story and telling you how to think about that. But in different environments, you've got to figure out what works and what doesn't. And early screenings of the film, things were moving too quickly. People needed more time to situate themselves in the environment. And so I think that's what we're all, as emerging or new technologists or new storytellers, that's what we really have to be mindful of. But you I also... Think, uh, sorry. Go ahead. Well, to your point, I, I agree that we're, invent, we're, we're coming up with a new language or the language is evolving. Um, you know, talking to the guys in the VR unit... Um, you know, things like the fact that there's no close-up. Mm. When, when you look back to the beginnings of cinema, you know, and someone, someone here probably knows who, but someone invented, uh, you know, the wide shot and then the, mm. the close-up, you know, the coverage. And the first time audiences saw that, they probably went, well, you know, what's happening? Why am I, wh 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 why is it always changing? But we're so used to that now, that editing. And so we're now inventing that now. Exactly. And I think, Siobhan, to your point as well, I think we have to have patience with the new technologies. They don't come out like AR and VR aren't going to come out perfectly no. um, incubated. We have to have patience with them. Some things will work, some things won't. I've seen a lot that doesn't in the last couple of years, but we learn from that. Um, and if we don't have, you know, it takes a while to come up with that language. It's a great opportunity for storytellers right now, I think, because of all of this. David? What's interesting to me is, is, is you guys are talking about uh, trying out certain technologies that, that you can dream up or that, can, that are coming into, you know, uh, emerging basically and using that to try new forms of storytelling. Whereas what I thought you said, Siobhan, was really interesting in, in terms of how we might even conceive of things in the future, which was that the way that our kids are interacting with things and, and the way that things are happening, let's say, outside the mainstream is changing. That, 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 and I see this, you know, I have a 15-year-old son who's really into technology and does it, and an 18-year-old daughter, and, and, and I see them consuming things in pieces in the way that you're talking about, and engaging more in building things for themselves um, in, yes, narrative in terms of how they're constructing their own narrative, but it's, it's sort of self-constructed, and in, in a way that's... It, you know, I respond to that because as we try to create content, as we try to create our books, we're trying to create books that people are going to uh, have a personal connection to, respond to, dive into. And my, when, I, when I see my kids like that, I think, how is that going to change over time? 
How do we create a book, let's say, that is in fact allows them to put things together? And there are people who are trying these things. There's, you know, Sourcebooks has put yourself into the book and things like that. There, so we're trying to figure that out in book publishing. But how do we create a book that is more, uh, in, a, in a digital way, that is more something uh, that um, you're essentially creating a world or pieces or allows them to create a world? I mean, I guess. To me, I think, what, is, what if Minecraft was a book? How would we do that, mm. right? And David, you know, the other thing that I see as a, as a trend amongst the, you know, young people and the world as a whole is communicating about what you're consuming. Mm. So in the old days, legacy media, you'd be in a cinema and then you'd talk about the film afterwards maybe and you'd read a review. But nowadays, it's almost, almost live discussion uh, and interaction. So and in the VR world, it's getting to a point where and this is interesting for kids, especially if they're sort of at home and you know it's past curfew and they're at home but they're allowed on their machine. They can get on their machine and instead of just Snapchatting with their friends, they're with their, they can be with their friends in a room. So it's almost like you're together and they can actually watch even, even 2D television in a VR experience and with their, with their headset and their microphones and they can talk about what they're seeing. It's like they're all in a room together. So what, even if it's just a passive, 2D thing they're watching, and then you can extrapolate that out to sort of gaming and interaction. But I think the whole idea of storytelling isn't just sort of um, and it, uh, you consume it and then discuss it afterwards. It's sort of it's all happening all at once. I think that that's something that we're seeing more and more of. Now, along the way, is there the tendency to feel that we have to surrender the narrative? Jo Joanne, you, you said that um, when you were selecting story content, you avoided narrative. What, what was the reason behind that? Yeah, in particular for one of the main um, uh, projects, that the film in our full dome theater, uh, we chose to do a non-narrative mm -hmm. um, approach to storytelling just because of, uh, and not overtly historical. And I think because, you know, what is Canada trying to define a Canadian spirit? It's so loaded. Who's Canada? Your Canada, my Canada, who's Canada? So um, we took it more as a, a lyrical journey across Canada, integrating performance within landscape as a larger meta, I guess, of uh, our place within landscape and how landscape uh, influences us. And that lent itself to more of a non-narrative approach um, in the line of Baraka, or um, it's more of a meditative approach about our, our place uh, on this land that we call home. Now, as you uh, venture into setting the, the, the um, experience and putting it out into the field, you've established metrics for success and what they may look like. Mm. Um, to David uh, Brady's point, is this um, going to be more about a live discussion and seeing things happening in the moment? What is the essential element of sharing a story for the future of storytelling? Hmm. That's a really good, I think that's a really good question. <laughs> I think um, more now than ever with these kinds of technologies or mediums, you have the opportunity to revisit the story multiple times. So, um, you know, the ultimate metric I think of success for us is will people come into the dome um, multiple times because wherever you sit, you're going to see things in a slightly different way or even in a VR story, right? What's, what's perspective? What's point of view? If you look here, you might be missing here, but maybe that's how we should be placing ourselves in stories. So I think, um, I don't know. I think this is what we're looking question. for in terms of the strength of a story. How do you measure that strength? Is it, uh, Siobhan, is it, is it the number of postings on Reddit? 
Um, or David, is it is it the number of shelf monkey contributions that you've changed your approach to that you get feedback from from this certain group? Like, where are the points that we need to start to look at in the future? The pinpoint that the things that we're experimenting with, or that we we believe that we've identified as being successful, are truly successful. I go back to what David said. I, I go back to did I can I connect with someone? Right. And that story connect with someone. Ultimately, if I can connect it with one person and then multiply that, I'm going to have success. So and the question is, is how much success am I going to have in order to keep my business afloat? It's a bit of like an age-old question, though. You know, I yeah. mean, are you speaking to one person? If, as an artist, you care if you know your your painting is seen by one person that changes their life, or do you need mass market? So I think it's sort of an unfair question. I don't think there's a single metric. I think it depends what you're trying to pull off, but. You know, in the digital age, there are m a multiple ways, you know, a myriad of ways to measure success, obviously. Well, then does that then create its own answer? And as much as you, as a storyteller or a content producer, you have to establish what the metrics are, mm. know who you're delivering it to, in yeah. order then to establish what the specific metrics of success are for that experience. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's always, why am I telling the story? Why should I be the one telling the story? Who am I telling it for? Who's interested in it? Who can add to the story? I think more so now than ever, um, like a metric of success for us, for Sesqui in particular, will be it's all about participatory um, invol involvement. So Canada is not static. It's constantly changing. It's active. It's a, a collaboration. Um, it's a collective social sculpture. So we want to hopefully encourage people to create create their own stories, pick up a camera, pick up a, um, a Theta 360, uh, go online and add to the dialogue because that makes everything that much richer and stronger. I think, I think Nigel, that um, it's important for anyone who's creating now to know if they care about communicating their idea uh, or if they're in a commercial venture and they want to get their, their, their story out there, is to picture sort of the A to Z of that of uh, you know, how it's gonna be made through the vision to how it's gonna be distributed. And I think especially in the digital age, you need to have a plan for where your product's gonna end up, especially in AR and VR. You know, it's not, you know, television's pretty straightforward. I think we've all, a lot of us in it, sort of get how TV works over the last 60 years and how you get your product onto TV. Uh, and then we started figuring out, you know, the internet and how maybe through Facebook and YouTube and things we can kind of get things out there. Um, VR and AR, we're coming, we're having to reinvent it again. There's certain platforms. So I think if you're going to invest in your art, your storytelling, have a vision for where it's going to go and how it's going to get there, else you could find yourself in a, you know, at a roadblock at some point. Now, David, David um, on the other aspect of that, if you've got the vision for where you're going to go, do you need to build the community around yourself so you can get there with some degree of of uh, amplification. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you were talking, the thing I was thinking about is, is you can have a vision like that as a, as a publisher or as a producer, but it's the creative people that you have to engage with that also have to have that vision with you, right? And finding those people, especially if you, you know, we work with a lot of authors in any given year, you know, you're only going to have a certain number of authors who are, who are actually able to envision that whole spectrum. Um, and, and I often find that that's actually the, the most successful authors who, who, who have that same vision, either have the same vision with you, but have a vision along with that. Because um, if you don't, you have to work then with those creative people to, to develop that. You have to sit down with them and try to bring them along. And especially if you're trying to do something a little bit further out there, 
um, you know, it, uh, that becomes uh, harder to do. I mean, one of the things we talked about when we were um, talking before about this is we've never done an audiobook from scratch because we've never had someone approach us to say, here's an audiobook that I'd like to publish. As a, you know, as a creator, I've written this audiobook. Do you think that might happen? I would love that to see that happen. But, right. but, but, how, um, but we get, you know, thousands of people saying, I've written this book I'd like you to publish. Right, mm. you know, the difference, the gap in that between those who are considering the technology that they might want to see their story told in and those who are just going with, with the thing that speaks to them. Mm. I love to read, I want to write. You know, that's, that's the, a big gap, I think, for all of us as producers. And that's an opportunity. I think what you just said is like, it's not that I've written a book and now I want it translated in audio to audio form. It's then people are thinking or feeling or creating in audio. So um, yeah. that might... Isn't that, that radio? Might... <laughs> or, a or a podcast? But, but what is it? But that's yeah. where it becomes interesting. Because a, yeah. because a book itself, a book itself is, quite, is quite interactive, right? Mm -hmm. And what is the nature of an audiobook? Radio, you still, you're, it's like programming, right? You're going to listen to it for this amount of time, and you know your audience is going to listen to it that amount of time, and they won't be able to shut it off, or if they do, they'll miss part of the story. But mm -hmm. an audiobook, at least, for instance, in that particular medium, can be stopped and then started again. So it's a different kind of thing. You can mm -hmm. listen to the story at your own pace, even in though the, the pace is determined by, by the narrator. Right? Whereas, yeah. whereas when you read, the beautiful thing about a, about a book is that it's so interactive. You can skip over parts. You can mm -hmm. read go at your back. own pace. You can go back. Yeah. You can read it. Like, there's all sorts of different things you can mm. do. Siobhan, I mean, one of the things beyond understanding the community and understanding your audience that we all agree is really going to be a critical part, what, did, what does storytellers need to embrace um, beyond that? Is it experience design? What's going to be the transition that follows you forward on the different platforms? Well, I think, I think just sort of following the... How, how we're talking about this here, I think the, the component to build in then is the question of audience. And when do you connect with your audience? And this has been part of the discussions around digital media in the context of you know, the way that now different kinds of properties are developed in Canada, where if you have to have a digital media extension or you need to, in effect, you, know, you want to reach your audience, um, it's different in the context of scripted versus documentary, because documentary will often basically meet an audience that already exists around often social justice issues or environmentalism or various, you know, there are audiences you can easily identify. In the scripted space, I can think of, you know, sort of many, many examples where uh, sort of creators have basically started connecting with their audiences at the genesis of the project, so mm. that there's basically a kind of uh, a conversation and dialogue and connection that's already happening. And there's really interesting examples, uh, obviously in more top tier writers internationally, like Neil Gaiman does this, but who was, I think he was actually writing, he was writing stories on Twitter with an online community co-writing, a couple of years ago. And then David Mitchell, who wrote Cloud Atlas, did this really interesting uh, sort of basically audience reach out uh, strategy for the Bone Clocks, which might have been published start of like September 2015, where he ran a Twitter account for a character um, who, in effect, doesn't enter the book until two-thirds of the way through it. That's and basically, cool. the character then disappeared on the day, the calendar day, that is significant in the book. So it was this kind of incredibly rich experience for his Twitter followers, and the character was basically interacting with, you know, sort of Twitter users. 
and he was interacting with the character and the character was interacting with him. So it was just this really sort of rich uh, kind of extension of the narrative, which was in dialogue with an audience. I think, um, I, th I love that. I think that um, using social media, you know, you could do a, a, a few things. One, you can sort of reel in your, your audience, you know, plant little Easter eggs and, or pull them in with bait, you know, in advance of, you know, the series being launched or the book being launched. You can do market research. You can, you know, see, you know, what works and what doesn't. You can access IP, you know, guys like Wattpad or, and, the, and you know, have, you know, it sort of, um, I guess, crowdsources IP. And then you can fund your projects too. I mean, you can basically put your project out there almost in proposal form or sizzle form or in some way and see what kind of reaction it gets. And if you're, you know, use a platform like Kickstarter or, or um, Indiegogo or something like that, you can actually finance things like this. So I think the future is a little more democratic that way. Um, you can sort of test market what it is, you, your development in a way. We're thinking of doing that now. You know, we're thinking about it. We've got a lot of stuff on the plate to do, but in somehow test marketing our, our development beforehand um, and potentially financing some of it. So that's bringing the audience in, it's allowing them to contribute to character development. How important is technology going to influence the creation of story worlds and in terms of the overall experience? Oh, I think story worlds, well, I think, um, you know, I, I have great admiration for Pixar and Disney for what they do. I mean, they can, they can hit a mass market like no other, but they tell incredible stories, almost perfect stories, the Pixar movies. Uh, and create worlds that you think, oh my God, I couldn't even, even imagine that. That's, in, that's incredible. I think that um, you know, that's almost the perfect storm of where we are right now. And I think if anyone's going to do something, I expect someone like a Pixar who are you know, well-financed and they know, really know what they're doing might take these modern technologies and push them a little further. But in terms of uh, visually and, and, and even in audio, creating songs and things, you know, my kids are, love this new Moana film. They're singing, um, what's his name, The Rock. Dwayne Johnson's song all week. You know, they just do it so well. So I think if you use those technologies, guys like that can use digital technologies so, so well. I can't remember your question, so I'm mumbling. <laughs> it's okay. I mean, I'm like, we, there's a good example in terms of Pixar and, and their ability to exist in 2D and 3D. Where, where, what's the next envelope? And is it, Siobhan, as you look to the future, how important is that ability for a story world to exist in, in, in different dimensions going to, be, going to influence the, the production. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think we sort of start opening up of, and, and it's sort of this idea of moving from 2D to 3D to 4D. And again, kind of thinking about environmental experiences. And that can be, you know, in anything from VR. It's existed for decades in terms of theme parks, you know, where you go and immerse, immerse yourself in an environment. And Disney's uh, basically sort of rules around theme park design, that every aspect is designed. So that waiting in line is as much a part of the experience as the rides themselves is still you know, sort of being used within, within the kind of marketing campaigns for like major kind of global brands. So within that context, like this past year, uh, Westworld had you know, a really sort of much lauded uh, VR experience um, that took you into the sort of the Westworld environment. And obviously that's kind of, it's the Hamlet on the holodeck, you know, this idea that we're going to move into immersive kind of theater spaces, which also then I think it speaks to uh, uh, 
uh, a kind of another element, which I think is also worth thinking about for storytellers, which is that, that one of the sort of the two touch points that I've heard consistently over the last 15 years for people who are really at the cutting edge in terms of digital media innovation are basically back, like sort of the, the background of having played Dungeons and Dragons, mm. which comes up all the mm -hmm. time. And the other is actually sort of a theater background, mm -hmm. and particularly environmental theater. And that's where you know, storytelling then is really moving us in terms of the tech possibilities into what is kind of spatial narrative. Well, you bring up Westworld, and it's funny because Westworld is, the story of Westworld is VR in a way, mm -hmm. is, is virtual theater. You know, but it's, to me, there's a, um, it's the cross between sort of full agency, full user agency and passiveness, full and passiveness. So in other words, if you watch Game of Thrones, you're completely passive. It's a great experience, but it's a flat screen in your dark room. Uh, if you're playing a video game, theoretically, you have kind of full agency. You can do whatever you want to a point. Westworld is also sort of, you have agency when you're in Westworld, you're interacting with the robots, but there's, um, What's his name? Um, the, the, the puppet master who creates these storylines. I don't know if anyone follows Westworld. So there are storylines, but you also can interact. And I think that for me, the, the, the area between complete passiv passivity and full agency is where we're exploring. So if you're a user in a virtual world, and we, we are giving you a storyline to follow, but you have certain points of interactivity, um, how far can we push that along the continuum? And technology, we're obviously limited by technology completely, but that's why we're pushing technology as much as we can so we can really experiment within, within that. So, Joanna, on the basis of the, the, David's intent this year to go and kind of push the envelope that way and look yeah. to that point, how important is it for you to start looking at the technology implications for what you're going to put together to encourage uh, interaction to celebrate Canada's 150. I mean, is, is it the technology that's calling the audience in? Mm. Is it the experience or is it the content? I hope it's all of it, to be honest. You know, it should always be content. Content is queen, um, right? <laughs> and uh, that should always be the driving force and then finding an interesting medium in which to pull that out. Hopefully people will be um, curious about a somewhat new, or actually like planetarium's old art form, but um, imagined in a different way. Uh, and then we see this also as sort of fertile ground for what's next. So to your point, the physical world, right? So we look at physical interaction and physical space, group gatherings, um, augmented reality, mixed reality, how do you create narrative with those kinds of applications um, to create more of a learning environment, compassion, dialogue, storytelling, all that kind of stuff. Very good. Now, <laughs> uh, we're going to open it up to the audience for questions. And um, I think, uh, Ramona, you're going... Uh, but I also, while we were there, got one, I know we are, we do have some live feeds, and got a good one from uh, some of our members in the Transmedia Zone who are watching. Uh, they say, we're so focused on user experiences and engaging audiences through these new technologies, but what about the storytellers or the communities from which these stories come? How do we translate their traditions, values, and habits in today's uh, media format? They also really liked uh, 
content is queen. <laughs> <laughs> David, do you want to take uh, that up? Because you've been looking specifically with authors and developing content, and you, you get writers submitting you stuff all the time. So do you see a trend anticipating this? Um, I, I think the, the trick is, is, when you guys were talking, I was thinking, the, it, it works if, if, if each piece that you have, if you're talking about different uh, elements to the story world that you're building, is authentic and is right for the community in which you're trying to reach. I mean, I think that's the thing that's, that, that answers that question that the, that the person is posing, which is it has to come out of that. If you're, if, you, if, you're, if you're developing a story that's telling about that community or that you want to reach a certain community, it has to be authentic to that community and has to come from their traditions. It has to be what, what speaks to them and speaks to them in terms of the heart. And so if you have, an, if you have elements in there that you know uh, that don't do that. I think that's a dangerous thing to, to have, just because you think, oh, I have to, you know, I have to transmedia this thing. Um, you know, that's that's where you get into a problem. But the thing is about about those different elements. I think is that it gives you different opportunities to reach different people, right? It gives you multiple marketing opportunities, and I think that's a thing that we often face is is a difficulty finally, re you know, reaching people in the cacophony of things that's out there, right? Um, so I think that's another element. I, I can expand on that a little bit before you guys, because I think it's a really rich area because it's both the responsibility to audiences and also the business opportunities that are there. And the conversation we keep having is uh, telling your own story, empowering others to tell their story, and then the responsibility we have of telling someone else's story. Mm -hmm. And this is in the headlines right now, and we're seeing this more and more and mm -hmm. more. All of these things kind of collapse onto each other, and I think that there's real opportunities as well. David Brady, you talk about the campfire test. You, you, mm. you, you apply that to your own content rules in, internally? No. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I figure, you know, you can go to, uh, like I said, the greatest um, big budget Hollywood extravaganza with all the bells and whistles where they've created this crazy world and just come out feeling empty. Um, or you can sit around a fire and hear a great ghost story from your grandpa, uh, which is about as low tech as it gets, and you have a much richer experience. So to me, it's the, it always comes down to storytelling. The nice thing about, though, about, I think, the, the interweb the digital world is that you can communicate with audiences everywhere. So if you're into quilting doilies of unicorns, you're going to find a lot of other people who are into that somewhere. Right. So every story, I would say, almost every story, if not every story, has someone who wants to hear it. Um, so that's an opportunity that the modern world has, is the ability to find someone who will actually listen to you. Not just the granddaughter around the campfire. I think we need to take uh, some questions from the audience. Um, we have some down the front here and on the side. Um, Let's wait for the mic also so yep. that everyone who's watching can hear the question. We have the microphone coming right here. Uh, the one thing you haven't really addressed was uh, the storytelling in, like, Netflix. Uh, if you take, for instance, OA, it's like one long movie. In fact, I had to, well, I watched, uh, you know, I had to go back from the 10th episode to the first episode to see how it actually, but apparently, and I followed up on that, it was designed that way, that you're watching, it's designed to be binge watched. I, I, I agree, and I think that, um, you know, a few years ago, everyone was saying that everyone's attention span was getting shorter and shorter, and television was breaking things up into little small pieces, and everyone said, kids don't have an attention span. Uh, and then we've been seeing quite the opposite happen. And I think the podcast Serial two years ago, which was a, you know, a phenomenon, was a great example of that. I mean, low-tech, 
just a, a good yarn over 10 or whatever it was, 13 hours. Very simple, well, complex story, but simple characters, you know, small box around the world, but it attracted a ton of people, and you're seeing it with long-form storytelling, too. I think people do have patience. I think if you tell a story well, people will stick with it, you know, as evidenced by, by your example, Netflix series, by, you know, serial, things like that. So I think if you tell a good one, people will stick with it. If, does that address what you're talking about? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'd actually, I'd like to respond really quickly, too, because I've watched the OA, like, twice, watched it through twice. I've watched Westworld through, like, six times, because it's that deep. But, like, thinking about, there's a beautiful, beautiful line in OA where she asks the, the group, um, I want you to trust me until you find that you trust me, right? I want you to pretend to trust me until you actually do trust me, I think is the exact thing she says. And I think that, you know, th those projects have a tremendous amount of respect both for their audience and for the complexity of the stories that they're sharing and, and in effect for the, the kind of the trust that there's going to be an audience that will engage that deeply, which is where the Reddit threads on Westworld were insane. Um, and, and in those instances, you know, I think it, again, it, those, do, those do model like the best of storytelling, right? Because what you have then is, is this experience that totally repudiates this notion that we have like this ADHD generation coming up, you know, which is wrong. So I think it's, again, that's where the onus comes back to the storyteller. Make it really rich and compelling and make people want to be there. We had a question down the front, the one on the I side think, here. Siobhan, can I just say, I don't know how, with all of the work that you have on your plate right now, you've watched these shows six times. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you have more hours in the day. She doesn't sleep. <laughs> down the uh, front here. Coming. And then on the side over there, I believe. Uh, my question was regarding... Uh, emotional versus intellectual stimuli because I was just listening to a CBC uh, podcast the other day uh, called Screened Off and they were talking about how engaging with text uh, evokes an, an, an intellectual stimuli whereas now we're consuming stories more by images and videos which is more of an emotional stimuli so how do you think we can recapture the intellectualism we get from reading in uh, a world that's more consumed by video and image-driven me media. Mm. David Bra um, Karen, beg pardon, Dave Brady. Um, David Karen, you, you've managed to translate to audiobooks. If you pick up on what we've said here, is there a different intellectual input when you listen to a book than oh, whether you... Yeah, that, I mean, that's, that's the key element that we're, that we're introducing by doing this project, is that you had the narrator reading the book, you had a whole different dimension to the book. But and is it less intellectually stimulating? I mean, I think that's your point, right? Yeah, yes. Yeah, I mean, yeah, actually, absolutely. It, it adds it adds an element of emotion that I think that, but see, it, that's what's interesting with the consumption of it. It adds it in a different way. So if I'm reading a story that has a lot of, the emotion is there in the story. And I can, you know, I, I, we have one particular book that's out there now um, uh, called The Clay Girl, which, which I wept when I was reading it, and then I wept when I heard it, you know, but I wept for different reasons. Right? So the emotion is there. It's, it's just the way that we engage in it. We engage, we're going to engage in those stories in two very different ways. In one, the, the narrator is going to give us that emotion, and that's going to you know, engender that. And the other one is just going to come from our imagination, which is what I love about, about reading in, in that way. It's funny you say it's, it's, it's intellectual, but it's intellectual, I think, if you approach it as an intellectual way. Whereas I think that's the key part of the storytelling that, that we're talking about that I think is really important, is that 
you know, in some ways we're talking about technologies that give the act of participation, the act of imagination back to the, to the consumer, back to the, to the reader, if you want to call it that, you know, in doing that. Whereas I think scripted television has, you know, that, that started at 8 o'clock and ended at 9 o'clock with commercials in between didn't give us that ability to sort of engage with it more personally. And we are talking about that now. And I don't think it should be either or. It's not intellectual or emotional exercise. It should be both. Art is the intersection of both. It's where emotion and critical thought starts, right? I I wasn't implying that it was mutually exclusive. I'm just Mm -hmm. saying one incites more of, it's a, uh, what is it called, like a scale between Mm -hmm. between Ah. the two. Like you're Mm -hmm. moving the scale between intellectual and emotional Mm -hmm. response. Mm -hmm. You had a question over on the side there? Thanks, Diane Davey. I'm wondering if you think that there's any fundamental shift with younger people toward the, uh, David referred to as agency-related story, you're part of the creative process uh, versus the passive absorbing somebody else's creation. I, I mean, I find I like both, but I'm wondering if there is a perception that younger people, as they uh, mature, will still be perhaps more, more engaged by the, by the agency type. Siobhan. Well, I, I think there's really strong indicators already, and I think um, you know, I think fandom is a huge area where you see within the context of fan fiction and you know, the kind of communities that gather around different uh, stories, story worlds, and characters, and kind of take that on. I think there's sort of dimensions again that that. Uh, I kind of, that are subterranean in terms of what's being generated. There's also a lot of just consumption and sharing, um, but I know that with with basically the kind of social media platforms that allow like you know the creation of your own story that's happening there. And I think part of again why why this is such an interesting area to me. It, particularly is that like when we talk about teens for example it was flagged in Jeffrey Cole's talk around privacy you know when you when you kind of move into adulthood there are things that enter your life that you want to be private about but what's happening right now in terms of say how teens and then tweens are consuming and potentially creating story material is that that's going to continue with them so there's potentially this whole subterranean channel of activity that's happening, and some is really visible in terms of fandom and cosplay and like other areas of, of engagement. And then there's other stuff that isn't, and those people are going to be the next generation of 20-year-olds and then 30-year-olds. And like how, you know, when they get there, are they just going to have totally different expectations <laughs> around what content can be? So I'm fascinated by that, and I'm not like, boy, do I want think tanks. And, you know, I've been doing this in university, having basically like, you know, games courses where all they do are play games and we talk about them. And students ended up saying, can my boyfriend come and sit in? And can my roommate come and sit in? Because they just wanted to come in and talk about games. Tremendously enlightening. Can we finish with David? I think one of the lessons I've learned and, and having, you know, anecdotally uh, at home, but also having watched sort of the business in the last years is that we can't, really make assumptions of the younger generation. You know, just when we think they're going to do something, they, they break the rules. Uh, you know, we were talking about their, you know, quote, ADHD. Um, you know, they, want, they, they consume things very, you know, in short form bits. But I've seen all the kids I know sit and watch very passive, you know, sort of non-agency content and get very involved with it. So I think that we shouldn't underestimate them. But I do think, you know, to Siobhan's point that... Uh, um, the ability to communicate and find each other and talk about it, whether it's you know fandom or 
um, you know, uh, through Snapchat or social media, being able to talk about the content. I think that that's not going away. They really, really need to socialize about it. I have watched the trend with some of the kids, though, where they're finding it difficult. And these are kids, uh, you know, 10 to, say, tweens, I guess, really, who have trouble. They ask, is this real or is this not real? So they'll see documentaries that, to me, look, you know, that's obviously a, you know, a real documentary. And they'll see scripted. And sometimes they can't tell the difference, which is kind of interesting to me. So for such media-savvy kids, uh, there's a blur there. So I don't know what that means. Uh, I, I, can't, I know that we're tight on time, but I can't resist asking one last question because it hasn't come up. And I know that there's a sort of trend in questions that we've had here that's either or, and it's never quite so binary. We've had lean in versus lean back. We've had uh, intellectual versus emotional. My question with VR that I keep coming back to is, how do we reconcile the headset, which maybe we mm. won't have forever, with the fact that the dominant technology of the last decade has been social, has been that which connects us to other people. Um, I'll start that. I actually think that the headset can be very social. Um, and I do, again, I see it in kids um, who use it to communicate. Um, and Facebook's at the forefront because they're, they're about social communication, digital, digital social communication. They're at the forefront of turning that headset into something where you can actually be with a group of people. So there's a new concert technology that we were just discussing before mm -hmm. where there's a virtual concert and you're in a crowd with your head, you're at home, but you're in a crowd at a concert and there are people around you, you can invite your friends and actually stand near them and you can move through the crowd and the way the audio works is that you hear the people close to you and then it trails off, complicated supposedly and the compressions, but it's, so I think actually used properly, it can be quite social. Um, and, and I think in terms of those headsets, they're a pain in the neck, literally. Mm -hmm. But I think that if enough investment's put into them, they're going to be they're going to look like glasses, like you know, like that in a few years. So yeah, and, and PlayStation, Ubisoft uh, launched Eagle Flight, which was their first VR game last year. And in the development of that game going to market, they consciously chose to do not only have a single player version, but a multiplayer version that could cross platform, so it could go between play, uh, the PlayStation console itself. Uh, to PC, to Oculus, so that you, when you have a shared experience, you, it's, not, uh, it's platform agnostic. There's so a everybody... game I saw recently where you're in a World War II fighter, flying it around, you're looking all around you, and your friend is flying you know, a zero, and you're trying to fire each other. It, it's incredible. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty social. Well, you're, uh, other than firing, <laughs> shooting your buddy yeah. down. But, to, yeah, stay on, to stay on time, yeah. maybe a one last comment here, and then to stay on time, what would be great would be to get comments on your, the, the games and experiences you like in VR that are social, maybe through the, the hashtag, because I think that's something that probably everyone is curious about. Did you want to add I'm anything curious. before we wrap yeah. up? Yeah, well, it just, I, I think of it slightly opposite. I think people are always, we're such a communal creature, and I think there are wonderful opportunities that exist like that, and we'll see how far it gets, but I think the, the trick is going to be creating those simulation immersive environments in a group social setting. Um, I think that's the future. Yeah, and if you want to see the HTC experience populated by 16 people at the same time, you, there's an arcade in Waterloo that launched last year that you can go and see that. Mm. Well, thank you guys. This was great, a great discussion. And I do look forward to some of those suggestions. So please, uh, please share them. Thank you. Hey. Thank you.